Current casts on Dublin Digital Radio. If you make it up, you can um, kind of open the door to possibilities. We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. Resistance and change often begin in art. Is there any way for me to basically disappear and not be visible for surveillance? That was the starting point. My silences have not protected me. Your silence will not protect you. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? Welcome to Current, Art in the Contemporary World, episode one. I'm Declan Long, and with me are Sarah Pierce and Francis Halsall. In this podcast, we're going to talk about art and ideas and maybe some other stuff too. Um, and in this first episode, we're going to look back at uh, recent exhibitions and projects um, involving the artist Liam Gillick. Um, Liam Gillick has uh, had an exhibition at the Curlin Gallery in Dublin recently and a project run on an ongoing basis with the Goethe Institute in Dublin. Um, Sarah, maybe we could start by talking a little bit about the Goethe Institute project. So maybe tell us what Liam Gillick um, was doing there. Sure. Okay. So this year, um, Art in the Contemporary World, which is an MA program at NCAD, is curating the new open, newly opened return gallery at the Goethe Institute. And um, this is in their Georgian building on Marion Square. And so for the first kind of iteration of this collaboration, what we decided to do was to ask Liam Gillick if he would give us um, a work, one of his discussion platforms, which is um, a work that he developed, I think, or in the early 90s, and kind of it's, it's sort of an ongoing series where um, he makes works for specific spaces, sometimes cultural spaces, galleries, sometimes not. Um, some of them are actually privately owned works. And they're basically um, ceiling platforms. So they're hung from the ceiling. Um, they have an aluminum frame that's usually powder coated with some sort of color sequence that he figures out based on some sort of arbitrary idea of what that what those colors should be. And then there's always some sort of perspex um, filter that that sits on the platform. So when you're standing under it, you can look through the perspex and see the ceiling above you. Um, I first came across these works when they were shown in New York as discussion platforms. And um, it wasn't my first encounter with Liam's work, but it was one of the early encounters. And they always struck me as very particular in terms of like how they resonate and, and as artworks. And so 
we, um, the three of us, in discussing this collaboration with the Gota, thought it would be a really nice way to, on one level, mark the space of this return gallery with an artwork that would be specially commissioned and would be in the space for the entire year. Um, and then other things in the gallery would happen around it. And just to kind of finish, the gallery in the um, in the Goethe Institute, the Return Gallery, is a really particular space. It's a it's a very small space. It's at the return of a, of the stairwell, um, so it's not fit as like a a large kind of modernist gallery space. It's really particular. And um, and so the idea is that that having a discussion platform there, especially, is a way to ground other projects that will take place over the course of the the year. Um, one of the things that happened uh, during the, this period, and um, while this work has been installed, is that uh, Liam Gillick was in the Goethe Institute to talk with our students and other invited people. Um, one of the things that uh, we were interested in talking him about, uh, talking with him about, was the you know, what, what kind of an artwork this is and what kind of an artist he is. Um, Francis, um, talking about that, that sculpture and the, uh, the, if we can indeed call it a sculpture, um, we might think of Liam Gillick's work as looking like minimalism or being something like, you know, for example, um, the work of Donald Judd, for instance, but his work tends to respond to its times, to the context of making art, um, differently. Um, and we're going to hear um, from him in a moment um, from that talk that he gave at the Goethe Institute. Um, but maybe, Francis, you could give us a sense of what way he might think about these kinds of sculptures and how they relate to, um, to our times as compared to artists working in the 70s or 60s or um, before that. His work is much like his own responses to his work. It can be quite evasive quite difficult to, 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 to pin down. In the space, the way the work is operating at the moment is it, it, it's sort of both present and absent simultaneously, right? Like sometimes you're sitting under it, paying a lot of attention to it, and then at other times it's just kind of receding back. You're sort of not paying attention to it because you're standing underneath it. And for me personally, I can never work out whether the work is beautiful or not or whether it is spectacular or not. It's, 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 a, it's puzzling. Certainly one thing, one of the questions that was put to him was in the crazy times we're in now, where there seems to be a shift from neoliberalism to neo-nationalism, the rise of populist politics and so on. Um, what work, what type of art does this age require? What's necessitated by this kind of age? Or how can art and artists respond to contemporary conditions? And it might be that to think about an art of neoliberalism, for instance, we might be thinking about flexible workspaces and an idea of, um, you know, everyone can work anywhere. And um, it might be that, you know, a certain kind of corporate dominance of all of our lives is, um, is defining and that artists somehow need to adapt to that. And yes, in the in the context of thinking about now, maybe in a, a post-Trump moment, the rise of a you know uh, more pronounced evidence of autocracy and and so on uh, around the world, um, is there a different sort of post-global you know new nationalist kind of uh, paradigm emerging? So this kind of thing you're uh, you're reminding us was part of that conversation. Yes, that was one of the questions he was responding to. 
I mean, when it comes to spectacle, like capitalism can do it really well, right? From grand pop concerts to fully immersive computer games to um, immersive environments to shopping malls to Trump Tower and so on. Like capitalism can give you that very, very well. So it may be that art, all art can do, or maybe one thing that art can offer right now is a sense of disappointment or maybe something a bit more modest. Yeah. And he, that certainly seemed to be some of the ideas that he was talking about. Okay, and we'll hear now um, a few minutes of Liam Gillick talking about that. Art starts with disappointment for me, like always, in a weird way. So, therefore, <clears throat> I don't, don't, I want to, art for me, it's very important to, to have a position of being somewhat evasive in a sense, to keep kind of meandering, to not be too much like giving back a didactic reading of what's wrong with something straight back to itself, a kind of series of parallel reflections. So a series of parallel reflections. This is something that he's spoken about before in his work, that it might exist in parallel with a series of other types of cultural activity, um, uh, but it won't necessarily you know, yeah, reflect these things back. Um, Sarah, this is um, uh, a consistent part of Liam Gillick's work. Um, what ways do you think that quote um, helps us out in thinking about and what he does. Well, I mean, in some ways, I think going back to what Francis said, I don't know if it actually really helps us, but I think that what, I mean, what, what matters to me in terms of what he's saying in this moment, um, where he's asked something really directly about the aesthetics of his work and how those aesthetics perhaps reflect or are responding to a, a particular present moment, is he kind of, on one level, he immediately sort of like, defers to the past, but then starts also talking about the future. So that's maybe this kind of evasiveness that Francis is talking about. But I think that what's really important is that he's, he's without talking, speaking about it directly, he's, he's speaking to this kind of um, mannered politics that has, that has come about since perhaps 9/11, you know this 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 way that artists have felt that the appropriate response to urgent political situations is to make work about that that reflects a consensus. Trump is bad, Bush is bad, war is bad, and I think that one thing that that this if there is something that this present time keeps kind of like the the lament of this time that keeps it that's repeated is that we aren't, that there's no space for complexity. There's no space for the really difficult conversations to be had. So we think that we're having conversations about immigration that we're not having. We think we're having conversations about sexual harassment that we're not actually having. We, so the oversimplification and the kind of like immediate absorption and immediate consensus that's built around some of these conversations these hashtag conversations means that we can never really get to like the more complex, slippery, difficult um, implications of our own participation or work. And so, um, and so as an artist, this becomes, I think, really important because he's basically saying, you know, it's not about being able to point to the politics as the subject matter in your work. It's about making work in, a, in perhaps a really Brechtian sense, where people will have to come, you know, will have to show up, 
where they'll have to think, where maybe the answers aren't provided in a clear way, where maybe some of the real difficulties around that, like Francis pointed to, around capitalism, evasion, politics, you know, are are unsettled and even unsettling for us when we're in that space. I mean, he also point in that quote, another thing that he he points at, which I think is really important, is this is the context that it's a very he calls it an exception, you know, that this this is sort of an exceptional circumstance. And I think that it's it's worth, it's relevant to keep that in mind, that this is a bespoke installation for a newly renovated building on Marion Square in the middle of Dublin. This is the Goethe Institute. Go- 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 yeah, exactly. That is the Goethe Institute. And that this is within the context of a student um, MA, you know, a, an MA being run by a college that's in another part of the city that has a very particular history. And so he's also really aware of, you know, of that, of that kind of like shifting tide around artworks, which um, makes their reception also kind of shifting. So that, that, that sort of thing of like, you know, being the artist and saying, this is what the work means. Can't, you know, it's completely, it's, it's not to say that art can be anything and that it's completely unfixed it's it's actually understanding that you know that the exceptional circumstances of the artwork are kind of always in play no matter where the work is i think you raised a really interesting problem there right which is one that i, I again i don't think we've resolved it here but you say people will have to turn up right but they don't and that's the one of the problems people don't have to turn up people don't have to engage and when you say have to, Francis, what do you mean by say? Well, Sarah meant it, so I'm being slightly cute, but Sarah was saying, well, people will have to turn up and engage in order for the work to be kind of activated and for order to kind I of engage. I didn't say that. I didn't say what? that they have to show up to engage or activate the work. Okay. I mean, it's a little bit, like, I'm not talking about a tree if a tree falls in the floor. Like, no, is I, it still an artwork? No, I no didn't mean it like up? that. But I, I, get, I get to my point, which is that art is everywhere, Right. You can have my favorite example. Katy Perry can call herself a curator because she's making some earrings, right? And if you go into the Nike store, it's like laid out according to the logic of an exhibition. So on the one hand, the logic of art is everywhere. Everybody's a curator and everything is art because everything is spectacle. And what that means simultaneously is that art is nowhere because it doesn't have any kind of special place anymore, right? So everybody's familiar with art, shows are blockbusters. It sort of lost a kind of specialness that it might have had. And I guess that's what I was thinking about in terms of you know, people have to turn up. If a work is disappointing, if a work is kind of slightly modest, if a work is kind of slightly awkward, like Gillick seems to be, getting people to be engaged in it is actually quite difficult, right? There's, because it doesn't reward you for turning up and spending time with it because it is a little bit disappointing. It's a little bit kind of meh. And I think that's a really interesting challenge, right? Which is like, how does art respond to these conditions of spectacle without just kind of giving up or being melancholic about a kind of moment when art seemed to be more engaged. One of the other things that came up in the conversation with Liam Gillick at the Good Institute was um, the, this very subject in a way about what art is doing now, what, what, is, uh, what are the sets of priorities in art discourse or you know, in, in art magazines or in art museum programmes and so on. And the uh, the argument came out, I suppose, that 
maybe there are things that art is doing now that it ought not to be doing um, or that it maybe could step back from, that there's a tendency perhaps to stray into other fields just, you know, voraciously to try and, I suppose, expand pointlessly. Um, but um, perhaps we can listen to what Liam had to say about that. So I do think that art is important and revolutionary, but not in the way that most people think it is. It's actually a space increasingly for people who don't know what they're doing and they can't find a home somewhere to go into and kind of like have a parasitical or even a, a symbiotic relationship with. Now, because I'm getting old and your testosterone starts to go sour and you get deluded, which is where the delusion bit comes in, I start to get kind of pissed off about it. So I've been moaning, complaining, because every time I go to a museum nowadays in New York, there's a dancer doing something or there's like a conference instead of an exhibition in every fucking Biennale. And there's like some like retrospective of a failed avant-garde filmmaker. And these are supposed to be the spaces of art, not just, you know, if these people can't find an economy and they can't find a way to exist, they should just go and find one, like go back to the village hall, church hall and do it there. But I know that the revolutionary potential of art is actually that it's this temporarily, like music maybe was at certain points historically, the space of new music or punk or whatnot, or hip hop maybe, that it's actually a space of potential for other people. Okay, so again, there we have contradictions um, around what art is or tensions perhaps around um, what art is, where it should be. Um, there's quite a lot in there from the perspective of, as he calls himself, a kind of grumpy old man. But um, so how does this feel? Does this, does this feel like where art is now? Does this feel accurate? Or is it a very regional Manhattan kind of uh, sense of the predicament of art? No, I mean, I think that, I think it does you know, back to the potential argument that Francis and I were just about to have. <laughs> I was getting quite excited. About that. That was, that was really um, because I think that there is something. He's he's in some ways it is talk. It's 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 he's referring to something that's kind of technical here in terms of that thing of the, maybe the scourge of um, of that was the, Liam interrupting our conversation. Um, the scourge of of relational aesthetics, which is that you know we all kind of show up thinking something's about to happen. And so we all show up ready to engage and ready to be engaged. And I think that um, if we really think about what he's talking about here, um, we can start to to understand art in a kind of, I mean, he's, he speaks about it in the beginning of the talk when he talks about Immaterio and Leotard. You know, art is like a sign or a message that's put out there and it may not be received immediately. It may be received in a very deferred sense. It may, you know, so it's not necessarily about kind of who shows up on the day and is like amazed by the work and then can write about it immediately. And then someone else can read that review and then go again, go to see that work. And then everyone's kind of running around the world trying to see such and such artists and such and such a project. Um, but it's a different kind of showing up. And I think that that is really key here if we're thinking about a work like this have being political and not a work having political potential. I think there's something very different between a work being political in the way that we could argue that this work at the Gotha is political. 
because it is resisting consensus. It is resisting the the capital kind of like spectacle. Look at how much money was spent. Look at how much you're you're going to get, you know, out of this. It's going to be transformative. It's going to change your life. It's going to make you, you know, a better person. Um, and that's something that can be really difficult to talk about when we're in a kind of this this really hyper neoliberal moment when things are supposed to have immediate output and immediate value. And if I do show up, I'm 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 expecting something. Um, and so yeah, so showing up and being disappointed, I think, means something and and has a kind of has a certain. I wanted to say value there, but as, when I say value, it's I don't mean it in terms of like, you know, bang for the buck value. When, when you talk about different... the work being political, I'm reminded of the way in which he's spoken about his use of plexiglass, for instance, uh, as a material, um, where he said that this would be the, the same kind of material that might be used in a McDonald's sign or a riot shield, and that he's interested in the potential um, of something that, sends us um, in both of those directions at the same time. Yeah, where there's a kind of like, there's not a hierarchical relationship to materials, but in some ways he also, I mean, we're not playing this clip, but he does mention, I think, as I recall, that he mentioned something about like, plexiglass is a material that kind of anyone can get, can get their hands on, which is true. I mean, you know, in some sense, ironically, it might be easier to get your hands on some oil paints in like a pre-stretched canvas, as well, you know, be easier than 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 finding some like very particularly colored plexiglass. But I think that what he's what he's talking about is something that's like really, you know, that also like for certain populations of people who might go to um, who might show up for edification, you know, to 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 show up thinking that it does make them better to appreciate the Liam Gillick at the Gota Institute that that somehow puts them you know, that's, that fortifies them in a certain way, that when they're confronted with pieces of plexiglass that are the same pieces of plexiglass used at McDonald's, that also upsets a certain reading of this work and of, of not just this work, but of what it is to um, want to consume work in that way. Francis, what do you make of um, that sense of, of, the, of the politics of the work, um, whereby there is something internally contradictory about what's being done, something which isn't didactic. That's a word which is which is a real bogey word for Liam Gillick that that art would, you know, um, you know, directly uh, command us or compel us to you know to to think one thing. Um, what do you make of art in that context? I think I'm aesthetically compelled by it because I'm aesthetically compelled by the disappointing, because I find that somehow paradoxically yeah. satisfactory. Life must be endlessly, <laughs> <laughs> ambiguously satisfying then, right? Always disappointed. Well, a pessimist is never disappointed, you could say that. Um, so, But there's something I find uh, yeah, aesthetically satisfactory about a kind of sense of disappointment, precisely when put in a context of other forms of spectacle. So, so, so if we think about the Curling Gallery exhibition, yeah. for example, which um, was on, has been on over the past couple of months, there are, uh, you know, wall vinyl pieces um, taken from, 
you know, the form of medieval woodcuts accompanied by small metal sculptures, which, you know, resemble minimalist artworks and, you know, large slogans, uh, you know, that, that name particular brands of cars. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems deflationary. Yes, exactly. As well as aesthetically stimulating. But, 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 yes, although I think nobody is really rewarded for spending a lot of time with it, which, again, I find is sort of an interesting paradox. It looks like sculpture, it looks like art, it looks beautiful, but yet will not quite be those things. But in addition to that, just following on from your question, I find it aesthetically compelling, but I find it politically suspicious because I I feel that it sort of runs the risk of buying itself a get-out clause, that it's kind of anything you ask of it, it it will kind of slip away or it'll offer you something else. So I'm suspicious of that politically, even though I'm kind of engaged in it aesthetically. This is a really tricky issue right now because there are um, arguments about the lasting uh, value of something like deconstruction in relation Mm -hmm. to politics, for instance, right? That, you know, that we might evade or, you know, analyze to the point of any, any uh, concrete position might disintegrate. And, and it, it's claimed sometimes, for instance, that some of the propagandists um, involved in the production of, you know, uh, fake news globally and so on, are people trained in these sorts of thinking around postmodernism, deconstruction and so on. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, the deliberate, you know, erosion of, uh, of truth, for instance, you know, comes from that legacy. I mean, that, that's, an, that's an argument that it's, that's at least being made. So... We could say that, and, I, and I've often believed there's a value politically, you know, in evasion and in the deconstructive. Um, but is it the wrong historical moment to prioritize those things? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, I think back to this idea of like being suspicious of the politics. I mean, I think that that's the point is that to be suspicious of a political claim, right? So if the work arrives with a political claim intact, that like this is what this work is about, that's one problem. And then the work that also says, this is what the work is about, and it's about right now, is totally messed up because it completely contradicts what it is to make an artwork, which is to make a work that can be received by anyone at any time in any place, you know, in the future. So you can't, as soon as you like lock it down, you should be suspicious of that claim. You should be suspicious of work that, that points to its subject matter as its politics. And so it goes back to like that kind of Ben Beneminian like idea of, you know, to, to, to make a work about Marx is not to make a Marxist work. And so I think that what we can see with, a with, for me anyway, with the discussion platforms is that political claims about the work I'm making right now in the discussion, but Gillick isn't making those as the didactic that performs in yeah, the work. I, I, I would buy that, actually. I'm, I think that's a more nuanced position than the one that I, I first said. Did either of you two see that Superflex work that was in the Tate, I think it was last year? I did. And uh, I mean, in talking of disappointment, Disappoint- I guess that, that defines it. It, yeah. it defines, yeah. So but to, perhaps not in the enthusiastically disappointed way. That it seemed to be a very different prospect to the Gillick piece that we're talking about, and that it did wear its politics on its sleeve. So this piece made by the... Danish collective Superflex in the main turbine hall of Tate Modern was a carpet that had the colours of the British currency on it in stripes. And then there was a series of swings 
that were um, activated, but you could only swing on them if there were three people on them, I think. There were swings for three people. And then that kind of structure was inside the Tate, and then it kind of well, kind of weaved its way outside the Tate, right? And then there was a wall panel accompanying it, which said that this was a critique of capitalism. Yeah. And it was, I think, there may be some exception that will pop into my head, but I think that's the worst work of art I've ever seen in my life. It probably it is. appalling. And the, but there was nothing interesting or disappointing about that. It was just wretched. As far but as it's I back to, I mean, I think it's really important. It's good to bring that up because I think that in some ways, you know, it is this idea of... Um, managing managing so so managing one's response to the work which superflex really tries to do in a very precise way in terms of like this is this is the politics at play here and any of the underlying politics that are hidden we're not going to show you and it's kind of it's it's kind of a the the a classic example of european humanism right that like we make work that makes this a better place mm-hmm. and that where the didactics are really clear, the consensus is really, you know, it's right there, literally written on the wall. Like this is a critique of capitalism. And yet any of the politics that support the work being there are kind of ignored, are are seriously, like seriously suppressed. And um, and it kind of, and it comes back and then the swings become this thing of like, but make sure you have a good time yeah, while you're sure. here. And, and, like the, the to, joy on your face is going to be like the, that's that return. As if to imagine that three people swinging is going to somehow bring about the inevitable collapse of capitalism. Yeah. But and this. Two people won't do it, but three. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's interesting, actually, if you think about like you know, what, like Liam Gillick's idea of like working in groups of three, you know, which is sort of like a perversion of that too. This, this thing of like, maybe it's better, but maybe it's also how Fordism works. And But it also doesn't connect back to something about the history of what became called relational aesthetics uh, and the way in which that, I think you said the scourge of relational aesthetics earlier, the way sometimes that gets communicated in education, where there might be something kind of fulfilling or politically empowering simply through some kind of um, inclusivity um, and cooperation and collaboration, despite these being in some ways the, the basis of a kind of neoliberal work model. Right. And that, in fact, many of the things which were interesting in the history of relational aesthetics, if we want to call it that, were about a different, slightly more contradictory, um, uh, complicated sense of mise-en-scene, of uh, situation, of um, the, the relation of one artwork to another or one artist's work to another, that there was never anything as didactic or clear as a sense of cooperative inclusivity, that these things, the works of Philippe Pereno and um, Angela Bullock and Liam Gillick, you know, coming out of uh, Europe in the 1990s were, were a much more opaque set of works, really, yeah. around what they meant by um, a relation to, to models of, of collaboration and cooperation and multi-authorship. Yeah, and I, I, I agree. I think that Angela Bullock, I think that the artist that you mentioned and Angela Bullock and, you know, the kind of this idea, I mean, in some ways... The problem that relational aesthetics has to continually contend with is that it coincides with this moment of advanced capitalism. And so it so unfortunately, what that translated into in terms of art experience was this idea of like, I'll show up and I'll see a boxing match. I'll show up and I'll see a, you know, a um 
you know, whatever. I don't know. I can't think. <laughs> like, I'll show up and a I'll cooking see. Display like, yeah, something. I'll get some food. Yeah. And, you know, and and so it made it really difficult for other conversations to be had around, like, artworks that aren't contained, that can't be repeated in the same way that 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 maybe artworks can be repeated and, like, regurgitated through capitalism, through neoliberalism. Um, you know, artworks that kind of that do sort of dissipate or fade away or like kind of fade out. And, and I, I think that we, that what's again, compelling to come back to this, this piece at the Gota Institute is it's sort of like a work that works as a simulacrum of itself. Like it's kind of like, it is one of his discussion platforms of Gillick's discussion platforms, but it also like refers to, and so heavily like is a stand in for a moment of its own creation, which was like, you know, 20 years ago or 25 years ago, you know, so it's, 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 and that's really difficult. Like back to the superflex, you know, example, when, when art, when the politics of art is around this European humanist transformative, we're going to make things better. Our politics are really on, you know, we've talked about that before, like everyone can agree it makes it really difficult for other works to to speak in that space. Works that are contradictory, works that are evasive, get really dis that get dismissed quite easily. And one of the things that came up in the conversation with Liam Gillick was a debate that he had had with fellow artists in the United States about some of these things, about how art might, for want of a better word, respond to you know changed conditions or changing conditions, um, particularly in the United States, um, following the election of Donald Trump. I hate to say his name, it kind of hurts to say it, but um, but maybe we can listen to um, Liam Gillick talking about that moment in New York. I had a fight with Martha Rosler just after the election and the, at, a, at a meeting we all had in New York um, at Anton Vidopla's house, who runs Flux where a lot of people, Paul Chan, Martha Rosler, myself, some young people, younger people, all met to talk about what to do. Kind of, it felt very, very weird, right? Because you don't think, you never think you're going to be at that meeting because that's the meeting they had, you know, after the, you know, yeah. when wars happen and when, but you had to have a meeting because what are you going to do? You know, pretend nothing happened. Um, and Martha said, Rosler, who's a brilliant artist and has a really good show now at the Jewish Museum in New York, said, we give over the space of art to activists. That's what we do. We take all the spaces, we give them the keys, and we just bring tea or whatever activists want. And I said, who gets to decide who the who's an activist? You know, like who's deciding this and how how does you know how why? Why are we doing this? Yeah. And she for the first time ever, she's kind of, you know, got a lot of, I mean, she's not, she can, she speaks directly, right? She told me to fuck off, actually. And <laughs> I thought, I actually thought, you know what? No, you fuck off, actually. Like, I'm not doing this. We're not doing this. We're not giving over the spaces of art to activists because I don't, I mean, we can, like when I was at Goldsmiths, we had, striking coal miners would sleep in the studios, right? But they didn't want to take over the art school. They actually kind of enjoyed 
talking to us about laughing at our stupid hair and stuff. Um, it was necessary. But on the other hand, maybe Martha's right. You know, I felt guilty. I then talked to her for hours that night, apologized and said, I'm really sorry, you know, for making and her tell me exactly to fuck off. So I'm, all I'm saying is that, you know, it's not for me. I, I don't, I'm not comfortable making a statement about it. I do think some people have to cede power and they have to, it's like punk. You know, a lot of what's happening in the world today means people have to step, step, step aside and let people have a clearer conception of how to change something or do something, have a space to do that. Okay, so that, there's the question um, that's key to uh, an awful lot of these discussions. Um, should we give up the spaces of art to, um, to activism? Should things become more direct, more, should there be more evident sense of, um, of outrage and commitment? Um, or do the spaces of art offer some kind of potential for uh, a different way of behaving, a different way of cooperating, um, a different way of producing? Uh, what do you think? I know I said that we wouldn't talk about sport and I don't want to do a sport podcast, but you don't ask a footballer to score a goal in a political way. And you don't ask a chef to make a sauce that's a kind of a rich allegory for capitalism. You ask them to do what they do in the most, you know, in the best way possible. Nonetheless, it might I would be... love to ask a footballer to score a political goal. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you can also look at, at uh, we won't get into this uh, in depth, but if you look at, you know, a book like Inverting the Pyramid by Jonathan Wilson, which is about the history of football tactics, it does actually, you know, look at how, for instance, the Dutch... Here we fo- go. <laughs> Here we go. The Dutch footballers <laughs> of the 1960s and 1970s, for instance, represented a particular model of society. Or, or you know, the Danubian football of an earlier earlier era represented something about Austro-Hungary, you know. So these these kinds of things have a relation exactly. to political ideology. And that's, that's my kind of point, that the, the way a kind of an ethics and politics works its way into cultural forms isn't necessarily in the very kind of particularities of the forms like the sources or the, the goals or, or, or whatever else. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a kind of an ethics and politics possible in those forms. And that's what I want anyway from art as well, to not be superflex. And there is a politics in that, in, in a talking about and re-engaging with an idea of, let's say, it, beauty. That's what I want. But a beauty in disappointment in this case, I think. A beauty in deflation. And that there's a danger now... Um, that that might be interpreted as a sort of, you know, uh, as a regressive move, that you're calling for the priority. I don't see that as a danger. Why would that be a danger? What's wrong with regression? Because in certain instances, regression might be too um, uh, a model which was oppressively hierarchical, which was patriarchal even, which was um, uh, dictatorial, um, that maybe there might be forms of art which, you know, have progressed since modernism, which have been, uh, you know, enabling, in, uh, inclusive. But I think that that's, I mean, that, that's kind of, it's it's provocative because on one level there is the, the impulse, right, to show up at the Goethe Institute to look up and see the skylight behind the plexiglass and to say, that's, oh, that's beautiful, it looks beautiful. And then to to also be kind of instantly frustrated in that response. And so I think having that, having those two things and being aware that at the very moment that one 
calls the work beautiful, that it doesn't necessarily have to be the moment that the politics of the work are negated. That actually might be the moment that like the gap where the politics can show up. And so, I mean, he says something in that quote that I just think is really, that we just played, that's really interesting, where he asks the group, he asks Martha Rosler, who decides? You know, who decides what is the activist work and what isn't the activist work? Who decides the work that's worthy of, of politics of the moment, of the present here and now? And who, who's, who's actually holding the keys? Like this idea that like the artists are the one holding the keys and they'll be passing them over to the activists. I mean, <clears throat> that's not... That's not what that's not the trans that's not what happens. And so these kind of very like subtle technical moments where he's really calling out a um a pretense that artists actually have around their own work and what they think they're doing. And that in that moment of urgency, like the day after the weeks after Trump was elected, when everyone felt that it called for this like urgent response. It's almost like the response was that they all showed up in an apartment in Brooklyn to talk about it. Like, that's the response. <clears throat> it's not the handing over the keys of the museum. It's not the, you know, let's make more political work. There's two things that come to mind recently from from a, a lecture I was listening to by Masha Gessen, a Russian writer um, who writes uh, about um, autocracy and uh, written recently an um, award-winning book about the, you know, the rise of of Putin, and she she talks about one of the uh, the effects of um, you know autoc autocracy and totalitarianism and um, being a kind of militant simplification of things. You know that that there's a, a sense of um, you know a, a kind of aggressive reduction. You know these things are easy; they don't they don't require us to think very hard about them. You know, so that that's one thing which seems important maybe in the context of art that maybe we might want to emphasize detail and complexity and contradiction um, and all of those things which are hard to manage in times of um, political oppression or uh, tumult. Um, but another thing she mentioned also in a set of, you know, proposed rules for dealing with conditions um, of, uh, you know, living under an authoritarian um, re regime is be outraged, right? To not give up the fact that, you know, each of the changes, each of the shifts is outrageous, you know, uh, and, and require a calls on us to kind of acknowledge that and register it and, um, and protest. Um, so, so maybe there's another uh, version of what art needs to do there, which is to actually be outraged. Um, but I don't know how, the, how and in what way you might pair those two things together. To pick up from your response to what I'd said earlier, and this links in, um, an idea that art would be outraged and an idea that art would be complex, I think is quite, an, and I um, don't think we should apologize for this. This is, a, I think these are old fashioned ideas for art. And I, your points were spot on about like um, privilege and power and hierarchies and so on. But if you think about what's, radical in today's society, right? I'm very suspicious of this word radical because the forces of, who are the most radical forces in society right now? They are people like Trump. They are people like the people who are driving Brexit and so on. I don't think we need to always demand and require newness. It may be that there are certain kind of things that are worth kind of recouping. Well, it's interesting. In Fintan O'Toole's recent book about Brexit and heroic failure, and 
he talks about the the, the, the extreme Brexiteers as being in the the sort of historical slipstream of punk. Right? Yeah, absolutely. That because they are sort of they are anarchic, anti-establishment. They're they're radical, and this comes with all sorts of problems. And I'm aware of them, and I'm a middle-aged white man from England, so I have to be very, very careful about how I kind of couch this. But it may be that there are some things that are worth recouping, things like sense of community through a certain sense of sort of civic engagement, certain kind of forms of um, engagement in the state, for example. It may be that these are structures or you know maybe these are conservative things i don't know i'm, I'm well, kind of just in, in, in the sense that there's a, a necessity to conserve to conserve something things. and it but maybe art can do that maybe art because art is one of those forms i mean maybe that's idealistic but it's certainly an idea that i want to invest in that maybe art can promote ideas of community or a kind of sense of collectivity or it can be a kind of space of thinking through collective values even if does, it's a space, does that, but does that clash with the with the aspirations of a superflex artwork, for instance, which would seem to would would seem to have some of those uh, hopes? No, I don't think so, because I think that's just too didactic. Because it's telling you what to think rather than promoting what I'm talking about, which is a, a space of disagreement rather than a space of agreement. I mean, I think it's. I haven't read Fintan O'Toole's book, but it's it's. I think it's important too to. To when yeah, using words like radical and and when you imagine what an artist might imagine they're identifying with, and when they talk about like inviting activists into the studio or sorry into the that was a Freudian slip <laughs> into the into the museum that you know we kind of imagine that we know what it is to be radical today, and um, and I think when you like a, this this comparison of punk to the brexiteers i mean the brexiteers identify with the most conservative authoritative forces in the british government who have the most power and punk identified with the most marginalized disenfranchised disempowered did i <laughs> did i already say that you know communities to use francis's word and i think that that identification is what is a radical difference between those two things. Like one group that's like, we want to be in power and we feel we feel as though we have a right and an entitlement to power. And another group that's saying, you know, maybe we have too much power and we should hand it over to someone else. And I think that there's a kind of sincerity to that moment that Gillick describes where there's artists who are intellectuals and see themselves as having some sort of um, privilege to be able to contribute in a meaningful way to the, a moment of urgency that, that, that they perceive. And that maybe, you know, in that moment, it's not about giving up this, being too ready to give up that space and to say, well, this is just a privileged space of power, the museum, and so we should, we should hand it over and we should give it up. But you could also perceive what Rosler is saying in that moment is, as an alliance, like as a kind of like, we should be there with the activists. Like it's different work. The artwork is different from the activist work. And maybe it works on different registers at different times, but that there's there's real compatibility and community and and I you know, and we kind of know this from the from someone like Rosler's practice too. And with that, thank you, Sarah, and thank you, Francis. Um, this was episode one of Current Art in the Contemporary World.